Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Yasha Mounk. Yasha is a writer and academic, known for his work on the rise of populism and the crisis of liberal democracy. He was born in Germany and holds a degree in history from Cambridge and a PhD in government from Harvard. He is currently a professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins and the founder of the digital magazine Persuasion. He's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and host of the Good Fight podcast. His most recent book is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. And that is what we discuss. We talk about the origins of identity politics, his concept of the identity synthesis, skepticism as to whether or not any of these ideas are a problem, racial segregation in schools, the ideological changes that have occurred on college campuses, the contributions of Michel Foucault and postmodernism, the rejection of universalism and objectivity, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, the imagined permanence of racism, the indoctrination of children, intersectionality, white privilege, institutional racism, equity versus equality, racial preferences during the COVID pandemic, the asymmetric advantages of authoritarianism, class and elitism, affirmative action, media coverage of crime and violence, social media and the business model of mainstream journalism, and other topics. Anyway, I hope you find this conversation as useful and as clarifying as I did. And now I bring you Yasha Mauk. I am here with Yasha Mauk. Yasha, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Sam. So uh, you are a, a repeat guest on the podcast, but uh, perhaps remind people what you're doing. What, what are your, how do you summarize your um, place in, on the intellectual landscape these days? <laughs> well, you know, I think similarly to you, which is to say that I am, you know, a critic of some of the assumptions that have come to dominate our mainstream institutions. But I also keep a very clear distance from some of the more uh, knee-jerk and reactionary elements on the right. So it can be a slightly lonely life. But I like to say that I'm a democracy crisis hipster. I'm somebody who started to worry about the crisis of democracy before it was cool. I wrote a number of books and countless articles about the threat of right-wing populism and some other things, forms of populism. But the latest book is really my most ambitious attempt to make sense of the ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation that have come to be so influential in universities and nonprofits and politics and increasingly the corporate world over the last 10 years. And that's called The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. And it's just out now. Yeah, well, I, I want to focus on the book. I'm very grateful that you have written it. It's really, um, yeah, you, you have finally produced the book that tells the story of how things have gotten so crazy, especially on the left side of our politics. But uh, summarize your current work in a little bit more detail. So wh wh where are you in academia now? And, and also remind people about Persuasion and, and your own very fine podcast. Yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, I'm a, a professor of a practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University. I'm a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. I write for The Atlantic. I've actually become a publisher of a German magazine called Die Zeit. 
recently. And in, in, in the summer of 2020, I founded a magazine and a community called Persuasion, which really is trying to stand up for philosophically liberal ideals like free speech against the threats from the right, but also some of the ways in which we're being undermined in a lot of more progressive and left-leaning spaces. So, you know, if you're interested in that, please come and uh, join our list at persuasion.community or subscribe to my podcast called The Good Fight, which has only the best guests such as uh, Sam about half a year ago. Yeah, and it is a, a great podcast. I, I regularly catch it. Okay, so let's talk about the book. It's, again, the book is The Identity Trap, just out now, I believe, at the point we will be releasing this. And we will track through it, but by no means exhaust the points of interest in it. You describe the core phenomenon that we're going to talk about as the identity synthesis. What is the identity synthesis? Yeah, so first of all, you know, we just need a damn name to, to, to refer to this ideology with. Uh, you know, Freddie DeBoer has this point, just, just tell me what to call the ideology and I'll happily call it that. And that's different from other ideologies, right? Some people uh, love socialism, some people hate socialism, but both of those sets of people can agree to call it socialism, even though they might have disagreements about, you know, whether socialism is to blame for how horribly wrong Venezuela has gone recently, right? With this ideology, we're in this really strange moment where a set of new ideas about the role that identity should play in our lives, in our society, in our politics, have come to exert tremendous influence. And we don't have a name for this ideology that is generally accepted. So I call it the identity synthesis, because as I try to show in the first part of the book, they really are an amalgam of different ideas that originate in the intellectual life of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, my story starts with uh, Michel Foucault and the postmodernist and later more broadly post-structuralist tradition in post-war France. It then goes to the post-colonialists who are trying to think about the kinds of ideas that can help to liberate people in the, what they call the third world in, in the 70s and 80s. And then it really takes shape in American law schools under the banner of critical race theory. So this is not a form of cultural Marxism, as some people want to say. You don't understand it by simply starting with Marxism, taking class out and putting culture in. It's its own, it has its own intellectual history that we really need to understand to, 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 to chronicle where these ideas are coming from and how they operate today. Mm. Well, I want to talk about the history here. I think it's fascinating, and, and it's something that I, I actually have not talked about on the podcast, though I have wailed and gnashed my teeth a lot uh, about uh, what I generally refer to as wokeness or identitarian politics on the left. But uh, before we dive in to start, what, what, would you, what would you say to someone who denies that any of this is a problem, right? I mean, there are very smart people on the left, and they're not necessarily academics or activists, for whom the, the first response to the discussion we're about to have will be more or less to accuse us of having been taken in by right-wing propaganda. I mean, they'll insist that social injustice is still all too real. And that's a point that you and I, I think, would be fairly quick to concede. Yes, absolutely. Right? I mean, we're not denying that social injustice is entirely behind us. We're not denying that inequality isn't a problem, etc. But um, this imagined critic of ours who, uh, again, is all too real, 
would say that beyond any shame-faced acknowledgement we, wa- we might make that racism and inequality are problems, anything else we say is probably motivated by our own bigotry or, at a minimum, it's just an expression of clueless white privilege. So, I mean, all this talk about wokeness being a problem is a, essentially a, a Trumpist hallucination. And for instance, I just heard this morning the, the uh, comedian and podcaster Mark Marin say this. And I, I don't know Mark, and, but I, I like him. I like his podcast. Uh, he's certainly left of me politically, although I consider myself very much a creature of the left. But I mean, this is where he is. I mean, he said explicitly this. This is more or less verbatim. He said that the, the only real issues of the day are fascism and climate change. And all this talk about wokeness and cancel culture and censorship is just a distraction. What would you say to that? Yeah, so I think there's a few different forms in which that argument comes. The first is to say that there's really nothing new about these ideas, that all that wokeness is is wanting to be honest and upfront about the injustice that persists today or something like that. Uh, you know, that often comes with a claim that it's impossible to define something like wokeness or something like critical race theory. And I think it's true that a lot of the people who rail against wokeness and critical race theory all day long on Twitter wouldn't be able to define it and call anything that might be reasonable or anything that's in any way progressive uh, woke in an undiscriminating way. And that then has tempted the defenders of this ideology, you know, on MSNBC and uh, sometimes the big newspapers and so on, to claim, well, you know, all that woke is is wanting kids in the South to learn about the history of slavery or something like that. You know, that to that, I would say that when you actually go through the intellectual history, as I think we will in a moment, you just recognize that that is profoundly wrong, that the founders of critical race theory, for example, were explicit opponents of the civil rights movement. But somebody like Derek Bell, uh, you know, marked, we shall overcome what he called the theme song of the civil rights movement and said that we need to move beyond what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of a civil rights movement. For somebody like Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, the fundamental tenets of CRT are, what she says, fundamentally at odds with the politics of somebody like Barack Obama. So there is just a new set of ideas here that Mm. as people interested in intellectual and cultural life, we should take seriously. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that part of a complaint uh, or part of this pushback is to say, well, look, when people complain about cancel culture, for example. They're just afraid of a healthy consequence culture. They, you know, either just want to go around, you know, using the N-word or something like that, or they just, you know, are making a mountain out of of molehills when people sort of get the deserved consequences for, you know, morally bad action. I try very hard in the book to respond to that by not telling many of those stories, which we all have heard by this point, but by telling stories where these questions really matter in terms of what our society looks like. Stories, for example, about teachers at many of the most elite private schools throughout the country now coming to classrooms in the first or second grade and separating children out by their racial identity, saying, if you're black, you go over there. If you're Latino, you go over there. If you're Asian, you go over there. And by the way, if you're white, you go over there. And that, I think, and we can get into that in more detail later, it's just not a good way of building a cooperative community or a healthy country, in part because it encourages the zero-sum conflicts, and in part because 
it's really naive about what it's going to do to the white kids, right? The idea mm. here is that they're going to become, you know, I mean, they're supposed to embrace their race, see themselves as racial beings, embrace the whiteness. And then the idea is that they're going to fight against the privileges of white people. Everything in social psychology and history suggests that the opposite is going to happen. That when you tell seven-year-olds the most important thing about who they are is that they're white, they're going to fight on behalf of the interests of whites. And that's the kind of politics that you and I both abhor. And, and so, you know, and then thirdly, the question is whether or not this has negative consequences, right? Whether, whether this is just trying to build a better world. And, and here I think there often is a temptation to say, hey, the problem with these ideas is that it's really well-intentioned people who are fighting against things like racism and sexism and homophobia and injustice. And sometimes they just go a little bit too far. And then the response is, what do you mean going too far? How, how can you go too far in the fight against racism? Right? And here I think it's really important to really explain what those ideas are in order to make clear to people, this is not going too far. It may be motivated by genuine injustices. The people who believe in these ideas may genuinely be wanting to build a better world, but they're in fact pulling us in the wrong direction. They're in fact pulling us to a society in which everybody will profoundly and perennially be defined by the groups into which they are born in ways that will make it much harder to understand each other, to treat each other fairly, to build thriving communities and stable democracies. Yeah, I think you've just planted a flag at really the, the heart of the problem here, where even though we can agree that injustice and racism and various forms of inequality, wealth inequality, academic inequality, inequality with respect to crime and violence, etc., all of these are, are social ills that good people should want to correct. The proffered remedy here is exactly the wrong one. And in fact, it perversely ramifies the, the very disorder it's pretending to target. And so well, we'll get into the, the logic of that in the moment, but I, I want to stick with the history. I think probably the best place to start are um, the universities, particularly elite universities in America. More, more or less all of my time at a university preceded the changes you talk about in the book. I mean, when I was a, a freshman at Stanford, everyone had to take a Western civilization track. And I, I was among, I think, the last classes that got a, a standard great books seminar out of that year without being told that they were reading too many dead white men. And I, I do recall that, that I, I think it was two years later, Jesse Jackson led a march on the campus with you know, hundreds of students chanting, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. And I remember that making national news, but I also remember not paying much attention to it. The curriculum was then changed at Stanford, I think, two years later in uh, 1989. But then I, I got, you know, I have a kind of a weird backstory. And so I got, I got to sample campus culture quite a bit later because I took a full decade off between what would have been my, my uh, what was my sophomore and, and what would have been my junior year. And so I went, went back to Stanford in 98. And um, the only thing I witnessed at that point that seems a bellwether of the kinds of changes we're going to talk about is that I attended a, a lecture by Jacques Derrida, along with thousands of other students. And I was quite amazed at what was passing for philosophical insight in that room. And I, I remember looking around thinking, what the fuck is going on here? I mean, I just I could not believe the mouth noises this man was making. And it, it was a kind of a, a watershed moment for me intellectually, because I was a student of Richard Rorty at that point, and I was basically devouring every course he was teaching. 
And Rorty had clearly invited Derrida and introduced him on the stage with great fanfare. And then I was the first and perhaps only student to walk out of that lecture. And it, I mean, it was almost in the spirit of intellectual protest. I, mean, I, I literally, I, I was quite happy to be visibly seen to have walked out of the lecture. And I, I literally had to crawl over the bodies of the credulous postmodernists in the making because the aisles were filled with, with students just sitting on the floor in, in violation of every possible fire code. Uh, and that was honestly the first and last thing I noticed happening on campus. And I don't think I knew anything else was happening until I saw footage of Nicholas Christakis getting heckled in the, by a mob in the quad at Yale. I think that was like 16 years later, you know, around Halloween of 2015. So I, I, I went completely to sleep on this issue for, you know, more than a decade and, and really didn't understand what I was noticing stirring when I was on a campus. But you've been on a campus for quite some time and continuously. When did you first notice the change and, and just have, how did you first intersect with this as an issue? So first of all, let me just say that that fight over a course like Western Civ is, I think, a great little microcosm of how part of a core of a critique has some amount of value, but the solution that the adherents of the identity trap then, then choose is, I think, the, the wrong one. So I think, you know, in part because students at these universities now have origins in many more parts of the world, and in part because that actually is the universe of where interesting work has been done in human history, it would make a lot of sense to enrich that kind of canon with the writings of Confucius and the writings of Ibn al-Khatib and the writings of all kinds of really interesting thinkers from other parts of the world. And to fight for that would have been a perfectly appropriate movement. But instead, the slogan was Western Civ has got to go, right? Mm. It wasn't let's also have a class on these other things or let's enrich this class with a broader set of readings. Let's reform it in ways that make it a better starting point for a truly global conversation is to say, let's get rid of these ideas because they're exclusionary in this kind of way. And that I think pre-shadows in interesting ways the debate today about what are the right solutions to all kinds of social ills. You know, I w would say similarly to you that I had two moments when I started to be aware of these ideas. One is in the classroom. So one is, like you, uh, you know, coming across many of those very postmodern ideas or later coming across sort of elements of critical race theory, seeing that people are aware, insisting in certain academic contexts on seeing something exclusively through the uh, lens of race or gender and sexual orientation that they had become had come to have a kind of monomaniacal uh, view in the same way in which Marxists used to just think about social class and used to try as hard as they could to squeeze any historical event into the lens of social class, even if it doesn't really make sense. I started to see in many academic disciplines an attempt to squeeze everything into race or sexual orientation or gender, even when it didn't really seem to have anything to do with that. But like you, I sort of thought, well, you know, academia, I mean, 19-year-olds always have terrible ideas. I had my plenty, you know, my share of terrible ideas when I was 19. And academics always like overly broad, complicated theories, most of which don't really seem to have a real impact on the world. Uh, this is not going to have any real-life applications. And I started changing my mind about that, in a sense, when I stumbled across a website 
I think perhaps late in 2014 or early in 2015, called everydayfeminism.com. And that was the first time that I saw many of these ideas distilled in a sort of BuzzFeed viral form in a more popularized and a more vulgarized version for a mass audience. And I thought, wow, actually, in this sense, these ideas might be able to have a real influence. Um, I, I have a couple of the headlines that I stumbled across here. One is, four thoughts for your yoga teacher who thinks cultural appropriation is fun. You call it professionalism. I call it oppression in a three-piece suit. Six ways to respond to sexist microaggressions in everyday conversations. And my favorite, so you're a breast man, here are three reasons that could be sexist. Now, to be clear, I think this is the popularized version of ideas that are more subtle than that. But that's the first time when I was like, oh, this has sort of escaped the lab and is out in the wild. Mm. Okay, so, so how did we get here? I mean, you, you really trace the origins of this uh, quite methodically in your book, and you, you take us on a tour through Marxism and postmodernism and postcolonialism. I think we should probably talk, uh, however, uh, briefly about some of the key figures here like Foucault and uh, Edward Said. And then we'll, we'll get into critical race theory and intersectionality, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, you've already mentioned. And then we'll, we'll just deal with some of the concepts that, that this uh, style of thinking have rendered fairly indelible in our, in our public conversation now, I mean, things like white privilege and structural and systemic and institutional racism. That's, that's all, uh, those are all synonyms, as far as I know. So we, we'll just get into the content. But let, let's start with the origin story. How did we get here? Yeah, so w the common conservative story about this is that it's just a form of cultural Marxism. You, you, you know, take out class and put in these identity categories into Marxism. That's how you get there. I think that's a profound mistake. It really can't explain uh, the actual intellectual history of this, and it can't explain the themes that are so prominent today. So where the story starts in my mind is with Michel Foucault. And Foucault is a critic of what he calls grand narratives, these kind of attempts to structure our understanding of the world through a particular set of conceptual prisms. One of the grand narratives that he was opposing was precisely Marxism. He fought this idea to try and understand all of world history through class struggle and then to predict the kind of revolution that that will lead to and to imagine what the society uh, that comes after the revolution might lead to that is all naive and it's going to lead to disaster. But he also rejected the grand narratives of, of, of liberalism. He said, you know, that structural account of what human nature is and how we seek freedom and the kind of institutions that can preserve inside, that is just as fraudulent. And so that pushed him towards a really deep skepticism towards any forms or any claims to universal truth and even to basic identity categories, interestingly. So even though uh, Foucault was, in our terminology, gay or homosexual. He refused those labels. He thought that they were overly constraining of the variety of sexual experiences that people uh, have in, 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 in the world. The second important contribution he makes is that he really changes how we think about political power. So, you know, you ask a smart uh, high schooler, how does political power work? And they'll tell you something about you know, the president having a lot of power and being the commander-in-chief or there being laws that are promulgated by Congress or something like that, right? It's some top-down model. What Foucault is saying is, no, 
power actually inheres in the kind of discourses that really dominate our culture. Uh, you know, this podcast to Foucault is an exercise of power that imposes categories on people and constrains them in the kind of moves that they can make, that helps to render them unfree. And Foucault, as a result, becomes a little bit apolitical. And Noam Chomsky uh, has said that he's the most amoral, not immoral, but amoral person he's ever met. Because mm. to Foucault, you know, you destroy or you challenge one kind of discourse that might give you a moment of freedom, but the new discourse is going to end up being just as constraining. So the funny story that I tell is that I, I will lay out in the conversation, I lay out in much more detail in the book, how sort of step by step, this is the impetus that leads to the creation of the identity trap. But I think Foucault himself would be quite disturbed by what became of his ideas, by the uh, naive way we think about identity today, and by the way, frankly, in which things like social media exert that kind of discursive control over people. I think he would actually be quite perturbed by, by how his ideas have ended up playing out in the world. Yeah, well, the, the, so the, the core contribution I think the postmodernists made here, and this is something you spell out in the book, and it really is the seed of you know, the, the corruption of the intellectual and, and ethical and political norms here that, that, that follows, is this rejection in principle of universalism, universalist values, universalist epistemology. I mean, any truth claim we make about anything, scientific or otherwise, is at bottom an expression of power. It's just the ruination of epistemology, as far as I can tell. And it's, you know, all we have are texts and interpretations thereof, and there's no grounding of human knowledge in anything but the assertion of power over others. Uh, and that's, you know, that while there, there are a fair number of turnings of the wheel since Foucault, as you point out, and Foucault wouldn't necessarily recognize what has become of his thinking in, in modern hands, there's this, this basic skepticism about the possibility of, of universalism of any kind. And, and there's this celebration of the shattering of society into this perpetual identitarian contest where you have, you know, and, and we'll talk about some of the concepts here that, in, that enshrine this thinking, something like, you know, standpoint epistemology, and we'll, we'll get there in a minute. But is that how you see Foucault's contribution or, or the contribution of, of the postmodernists in general? Yes, I think there's sort of one and a half contributions that they make to the core themes of the identity synthesis today. So the first, exactly as you're pointing out, is this profound skepticism of objectivity, of a deep embrace of a subjective uh, reading of the world, the, the, the idea of my truth that stands equivalent to your truth, and there's no neutral way of being an arbiter between those two things. And the political implications of that, that, you know, phrases like, you know, all men are equal, uh, you know, are just ideological claptrap because they can have no objective foundation um, or applicability. They're just the grand narrative we use to flatter ourselves into thinking that we have a more humane society or that we have something to live up to, right? So that's the direct contribution. And then there's the indirect contribution, which starts to take us to the post-colonial project. Um, now, this is a set of thinkers at a time in the 50s and 60s where, you know, decades or centuries of 
colonial exploitation are finally coming to an end. And many countries around the world have to think, all right, on what kind of set of ideas and principles are we going to, to, to found our nations? And, and they're quite skeptical or deeply skeptical of a kind of Western set of ideas uh, that they see as tainted with uh, colonialism. So that's a basic background. And somebody like uh, Edward Said, um, Palestinian-American who has uh, roots in Palestine, grows up in, in Egypt and then in New England, becomes a professor at Columbia University, uses the tools of discourse critique that Foucault has inspired in him. In fact, Foucault is the first thinker he mentions positively in his most famous book, Orientalism, and just about the only thinker he mentions positively in that book. So he says, look, perhaps these tools can help us to understand how the Orientalist discourse in the West, the way that the West has thought about the East, has helped to inspire, to defend, to create a fig leaf for its domination of those countries. Um, but then he says we need to go a step further, whereas Foucault is sort of quietest, ultimately says one discourse is, bad and is as bad as another. He says, no, one discourse is not as bad as another. The whole point here is to change the discourse in such a way that countries in the East and people in the East have more agency and perhaps to invert the kind of discourse that we had earlier. So it becomes a politicized form of discourse analysis or politicized form of discourse critique. And that, I think, is a second theme, one that has its roots in Foucault but really comes to fruition with Said, that uh, helps to explain a core theme of uh, these, these ideas today. That what it is to do politics today in many contexts is not to you know, campaign for a political candidate or to argue for a particular kind of law. It is to deconstruct a public discourse. It is to critique or problematize, my least favorite word, to, mm. to, to, to find problematic some way that we talk about the world. It is to engage in a kind of cultural criticism, right? Like today we, 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 we interpret as naturally political or as a natural form of activist politics, you know, celebrating or critiquing or uh, debating about the Barbie movie. And, 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 and that, I think, comes in many important ways from Said's response to, to, to Foucault. Mm, I just had a memory when you were talking about uh, the transition from Foucault to Said around this issue of there being no such thing as objective knowledge without politics. It's all just politics at bottom. There was one other landmark in my pilgrim's progress into this issue that I, I should have recalled, which was I was in a journal club when I was getting my PhD in, in neuroscience at UCLA, and um, was quite blindsided by a criticism of uh, some paper we were reading, you know, some neuroscience paper, that uh, I think it was actually a guest professor brought in, and she launched into a, a feminist slash post-colonialist critique of really science in principle. And I remember, I remember it being just a truly lacerating hour of really kind of failures of, ultimately of failures of politeness on uh, the part of many people there to try to embrace these views. Uh, I mean, it was just so crazy making. Uh, anyway, so I should have known something was up. That was later. That was more like uh, 2007 or six or so. 
So the post-colonialism, obviously, you know, there, there, there are many critical things to be said about the history of Western predation on what we now call uh, the developing world. So, you know, colonialism is not a happy story, although, you know, there are certainly local examples where you can't quite claim it was universally bad in every case, you know, watching the British try to get the... Um, the Indians to stop practicing sati, the burning of uh, a widow on on the pyre of her of her husband. I mean that's not uh, that's not all bad, but it, no one wants to defend that history without caveat. How do we get to critical race theory and intersectionality from here? Yeah, so there's one more key step that I think we have to chronicle. And that is the thought of Gayatri Spivak, uh, who's also a post-colonial scholar, grown up in Kolkata, in Bengal, in West India, also comes to teach at Columbia University as a literary critic. She also is deeply steeped in postmodern thought. She makes her name as a translator and editor of some of the key post-structuralist texts. And so she agrees with one position that people like Foucault held, which really seems to be fundamentally at odds with where we arrived at, where we got to at the end. And that is the idea that we should be skeptical about these essentialist claims about identity, skeptical about the idea that somehow if you're a member of some group, like a racial group or a different kind of group perhaps, that that, that just gives gives us some essential knowledge about who you are, that some essential characteristics of yours are going to turn on your membership in that kind of group. So she buys, as a good postmodernist, post-structuralist, the uh, critique of essentialist accounts of identity. But she is also perturbed by a conversation that Michel Foucault has with Deleuze, I believe, in which they say, you know, it's really time to stop. And you can see how that's a critique of Marxism. It's time to, to, for the intellectuals to stop being the avant-garde that speaks on behalf of these identity groups. We shouldn't be speaking on behalf of proletarians in Paris. They can speak for themselves. And Spivak reads this and she says, well, hang on a second, you know, what she calls the subaltern, the, the, the most oppressed people, the least you know, resourceful people, the people who have the least access to education and other things in the streets of Calcutta, they can't speak for themselves. They simply don't have the standing and, and, and the tools that perhaps a white worker in Paris might have. Somebody has to speak for them. And so she comes to say, well, perhaps uh, in order to be able to speak for them and, and use the identity categories we need to do that, we should, for strategic purposes, adopt an essentialist account of identity. So she coins this term in an interview of strategic essentialism. Yes, philosophically, we should reject essentialism. But in practice, for strategic purposes, we should act as though those objections didn't exist. And that means encouraging people to define themselves by these groups into which we're born in order to be able to fight against various forms of injustice. In a line that today might get her in trouble in progressive circles, she says, look, perhaps there's no essential nature to what a woman is, but for strategic purposes, let's just define a woman as having a clitoris and move on and be able to do feminist politics. So, So Spivak... A really inspires another. Although I would point out, I can't remember if you make this point in the book anywhere, but there is a tension, maybe even incoherence around some of these these ideas 
on the left currently where you ha- you, you'll, you'll have it said that race, for instance, is nothing but a social construct, and yet yes. there's still an assertion of essentialism with respect to identity around race. Right. I mean, the, the, this is exactly what I was about to say, Sam, and this is exactly where it comes from. That is an applied form of strategic essentialism. And we've all heard it. Race is a social construct, right? Forget about race. It's complete, terrible fiction. But we're going to go on to talk about the world as though race was the only salient category. And in fact, we're going to encourage children to define themselves by the race. One of the most influential consultancy companies that consults elite private schools in their curricula is called Embrace Race. And one of the things they say is race is a social construct. And then they say the goal of a good education is to get students to see themselves as racial beings. Hmm. That internal contradiction, and Spivak admits that it's a contradiction, comes straight from this post-colonial idea of strategic essentialism. Hmm. Okay. Well, now the, the knot gets tighter. What, what about critical race theory? So that's the next step. Um, now we go you know, firmly to the world of the United States. I mean, Saeed and Spivak with teaching the United States, but the concern in many ways is with, with the Middle East or with, 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 with South Asia, respectively. Now we arrive at American law schools at a set of thinkers who at first start out in critical legal studies, which is basically postmodernism meets the American law school, and who think that that tradition doesn't talk enough about race. So, so, so they want uh, uh, you know, to use those postmodernist tools and legal analysis to understand the role of race in the United States better. And the really founding figure in this is an African-American lawyer and civil rights activist initially, and then scholar called Derek Bell. Bell in the 1960s does heroic work working for the NAACP, helping to desegregate schools and businesses and other institutions through the American South and beyond. But he starts to think in this work that this might be a mistake. He starts to say, perhaps these segregationist senators who kept complaining that civil rights lawyers are just imposing their ideology of desegregation and aren't really speaking for the views and the interests of their clients, perhaps there's something to that. Now, there's a little bit of a basis for that, which is reasonable. You know, Bell has some clients who are fighting to desegregate schools, but by the time that they win in that case, those kids have graduated, so they never got the benefit of the desegregated schools. Some of the new schools really don't have many resources, and, and, and the schools deteriorate, and so people don't have great educational opportunities. So there's a rational basis for what he says, but the conclusion to which he jumps is really very radical and really very extreme. He starts to say that, first of all, Brown versus Board of Education was not a way of living up to the ideals of the Constitution. It was not a way of working through the contradictions of American life to live up to a grander ideal. It it was only pursued because it was in the interest of whites. Some constellation of things had changed. They wanted to you know, compete with the Soviet Union ideologically, and they want to develop the Sun Belt and whatever else. And so really, it was just in the interests of whites to do this. And secondly, perhaps it was a mistake. Perhaps, you know, the NAACP should have fought for better segregated schools rather than try to integrate those schools. And so here you see really the, you know, along with some of the things that Foucault had said, the, 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 the key rejection of integration. 
the key rejection of the idea that what we need to do is to live up to our universal principles, to be aware of a way that they might exclude people and improve the country, form an ever more perfect union by fighting against worse injustice. No, 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 no. The point of all of these ideals is to pull the wool over people's eyes, to perpetuate discrimination, to make any progress we have to get rid of it, and really make how we treat people explicitly depend on the kind of group to which they belong. The second strain in Bell's thought is the thesis of what he calls the permanence of racism. According to him, when he passed away in the 2000s, America was still as racist as it had been in 1950 or Mm. 1850. So really, there's no progress to be had unless we have a radical revolution that just gets rid of our entire legal and political structure. Let me just jump in here because I think it's worth lingering on on this point of segregation. And because I, I think it w- would be shocking to most people who are not paying attention to this issue closely, or, or people like someone like Mark Marin, who I mentioned at the beginning here, who imagine that this, these are all just right wing talking points. They're, these are coming out of this like Ron DeSantis boilerplate that is focused on a couple of weird stories you know, out of Florida or some other spot that don't represent any trend that we need to take seriously. And yet, and and I I don't know if you have a sense of how widespread this practice is, but the idea Mm. that anywhere in America, a teacher is sitting down second graders and insisting that they become excruciatingly conscious of racial difference. I mean, that, that is just at this point in history, that, that, that is just, it's not only child abuse, it's an abuse of society. I mean, it's a deliberate rending of the social fabric. It is so wrongheaded that I think most people hearing it, most people on the left, just will doubt that these stories are true, that anyone is actually doing this. Yeah, so there's two points here, right? The first is that uh, and we touched on that a little bit earlier, you know, this idea that all that wokeness, all that critical race theory is, you know, critical race view. Well, it's just wanting to think critically about the role that race plays in American society. And surely race plays a big role in American society. And we should be aware of that. No, 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 no. If you define critical race theory that way, you would offend the people who initiated it, right? Derek Bell couldn't have been more explicit that he wanted to reject the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement, right? Kimberly Crenshaw couldn't have been more explicit about the fact that she thought that Barack Obama was fundamentally at odds with the basic tenets of critical race theory. So we're talking here about an ideology, which, by the way, I think is, is, is smart and thoughtful. I think the, these are serious writers and theorists. I enjoyed reading them in many ways. They are just fundamentally at odds with my vision of what would make for a better society and how we can create thriving diverse democracies. And then the other question is, you know, how much, uh, how far has that gone in actually being applied across the United States? And, 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 and again, I do think that these, you know, when people claim, well, you know, I mean, CRT is a graduate level theory, it's not uh, being read in elementary school classrooms. Well, of course, first graders aren't sitting down to read Derek Bell or to read Gayatri Spivak or to read Kimberly Crenshaw, and they wouldn't understand them if they did as first graders. But this idea that to raise the right racial consciousness and prepare people for the right kind of political activism, you should get them to embrace race, even for white students to embrace the whiteness, and that that 
is the preamble to having the right racial consciousness that will allow you to make political progress with a few other steps and so on, but does very much root in these ideas that I describe in the book. And, and yes, you see that very strongly in private schools, which have fewer legal constraints. You see it increasingly even in public schools. So there's a public school in Evanston that offers separate math classes for students who identify as black. There was recently an elementary school in Oakland that organized a play date exclusively for non-white students. And these ideas are fashionable. You know, one of the stories I tell in the book is of Kyla Posey, a African-American educator who lives in the suburbs of Atlanta, who has two little girls. And uh, she asked whether she could request a classroom teacher for her kids. The school uh, had allowed her to do that in the past and said, sure. She put in her request and the principal of the school kept stalling, kept sort of trying to put it off. And eventually, Kyla Posey said, look, what's going on here? Why, why, why won't you let me have my choice? And the principal said, well, I'm sorry, but the school, you, you know, the class you re requested, that's not the black class. Now, you might think this is a story about straight-up racial segregation in the South of a straight-up right-wing racist, but the, the principal of the school is herself black. And she's a progressive. Mm who uh, says that she suffered because in the private school she went to as a child, there weren't enough black kids. And so she wants all of the black kids to be in a strongly black environment. And so she thinks that all of the black kids in this elementary school have to go to the black class, even if the parents don't want to do that. You know, this is rooted in a really influential book by an educator called Beverly Tatum you know, who, 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 who was the president of Spelman College, which educates a lot of teachers, right? I mean, these are not fringe ideas at West Point. They are the fashionable, in some ways, the dominant theories in schools of education in a lot of uh, the progressive educational world. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the one problem we have rhetorically here is that many of these stories are you know, catnip for people on the right. I mean, they are the, it's, it's the single issue. I mean, this and, you know, the trans stories are, you know, you just get fused into a, the, the single issue of the problem of wokeness on the right. And the mainstream media, for the most part, ignores them. And, and you just have one story. I remember a story now, I forgot where it was reported, but I think this happened in, in Las Vegas, but it, it was a, Basically, an Onion article, you know, and the, of which there have been hundreds, where you know a girl is in her public school is being brought into some quasi um, Maoist struggle session around race and told that she benefits from white privilege and she has to be aware of this at all times. And you know, the, her her mother wound up complaining and it got some media attention because. The family was literally homeless, right? This is a homeless girl hmm. who is being hectored about how much white privilege she has. It's completely insane. It's not to say that white privilege isn't a thing. I mean, we can talk about the reality of it insofar as it, it still exists. But, you know, historically, there's no question it, it has been a real variable in society. But, I mean, it's just, it's so psychologically obtuse to think that the way to ameliorate the problem of inequality, the problem of racism, the problem of tribalism, the problem of spurious notions of human difference on the basis of superficial characteristics like skin color. The way to deal with this is to take children 
who are not born racists or you know racially conscious, and to problematize the variable of race for them at the soonest opportunity. The real issue is that, as I think you've spelled out clearly here, but we should reiterate it, critical race theory and its attendant ideas explicitly repudiate the vision of racial harmony espoused by the, you know, what most liberals would recognize as the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King's notion of judging people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, that is not the goal of this way of thinking about race. Yeah, two thoughts. One is that by definition, anybody who is in a position to lecture others about privilege is probably going to be more privileged. Again, that doesn't mean that there isn't an underlying reality where white people have certain advantages in the United States and certainly historically have had those advantages. But just by definition, who's, who, who are you going to hear about from, from about you know, white privilege? It's going to be a, a well-paid educator or DEI consultant or some talking head on CNN. Mm. And on average, the person who's receiving that message is always going to be less privileged than that person. So there's just a real situational problem where people are continually put in this position where they look at somebody who they know in all kinds of ways has, has a better life than them, probably has a higher salary than them and so on. Um, it's telling them about how privileged they are. And so it's not always as extreme as this particular example you, you, you outlined, but, but, but that's just always going to be you know, a basic problem of communication for this theory. Um, you know, the deeper point here is that you know, there's a really deep literature uh, in social psychology about how you can overcome prejudice, about how you can inspire trust among members of groups that have historically been in conflict with each other. And that's called intergroup contact theory. And there's been, I mean, thousands, literally thousands of studies demonstrating that these forms of intergroup contact can have a very positive effect. But we also know something about the conditions under which those effects are likely to accrue. And those are when people in that situation are equal. They don't have to be equal in society as a whole, but in that situation, in that context, they're equals. It's when they have a, a common goal, when we're fighting for something together. And it's when the uh, you know, background society, the background institutions and authority figures are encouraging them to get along. What's the paradigmatic case of that? Being on a sports team together, right? Mm. You are equal members of a sports team. You're trying to win over the other people. And your coach tells you, no beef, right? We got to hold together in order to win. That's when often people come to trust each other. And then, you know, after the game, they can have a conversation and they can open up about forms of experience, you know, discrimination or injustice they may have experienced. That's how you build trust. A lot of the pedagogical practices that we have today are directly designed to do the opposite. And we're giving up on many of the kinds of traditions that facilitated those exchanges in American society. You know, as, as, as a European, I'm always slightly shocked by this weird, cruel, and unusual habit you have of making first years in college, literally live in the same room with somebody they don't know. Mm. But that doesn't really happen in, in Europe very much. But it used to be that those were randomly allocated, or perhaps people even tried to choose roommates that were very different from them. Some colleges did that. Today, you either have students come in and they found somebody they like on you know, social media or some kind of local meetup, and that person is much more likely to be similar to them. Or you even have lots and lots and lots of elite universities build racially separate dorms for mm. African-Americans and sometimes for Hispanics, encouraging incoming students to take rooms in those spaces. So we're really just systematically 
as a society, rather than encouraging people to have those forms of communication, are discouraging that and encouraging to see each other as potential enemies, to be hyper-attuned to uh, any kind of bad formulations that might be a form of microaggression. In many universities, rather than saying you expect it to get along, you now have anonymous tip lines to report perceived microaggressions. That is the opposite of what the literature tells us mm. we need to do to facilitate those meaningful exchanges. Mm. Okay, well, I want to I talk about the role that elites have played here, but um, I think there's a few terms we should define before, before we, we hit that part of the conversation. So I, I, I last left you with the contributions of mostly Derek Bell, insisting that racism is permanent. We've mentioned Kimberly Crenshaw. Well, let's talk about her concept of intersectionality, because many people will have heard it and perhaps have some false associations with the term. Well, what is intersectionality? Well, it's hard to say what intersectionality is, because there's intersectionality, as Crenshaw described it, and then there's what's become of that term in our discourse. So let me tell you both of those. You know, when she first writes about intersectionality, she's basically describing what in social science we would know as an interaction effect, right? So if I go out without an umbrella, but it doesn't rain, I don't get wet. If I go out and I haven't, it is raining, but I have an umbrella, I don't get wet. If I go out and it's raining and I don't have an umbrella, I might get drenched, right? So there's interactions of different factors that can have a very, very different kind of outcome. What Kimberly Crenshaw shows in quite a convincing way by uh, using a lawsuit about workers uh, at a factory in Michigan, I believe in the General Motors hmm. factory, is that that factory had hired, uh, had refused to hire black men for a while, and then it started hiring them, and it had refused to hire white women for a while, and then it started hiring them. But it didn't start to hire any black women until much later. And when there was a recession, they used a first-in, first-out system, and so they fired all of the black women that were there. And when they sued, saying, hey, because of this past discrimination, we now have these disadvantages that goes against civil rights legislation, a judge said, well, the only protected categories we have is women or black people. You, women aren't being discriminated against. Black people aren't being discriminated against. So tough luck. And Crenshaw rightly says, well, that's an affront to our sense of justice. You know, the, the, the disadvantages that black women experience aren't just a sum of what white women experience or what black women experience. In this particular case, they were differently situated and the kind of disadvantage they uh, suffered because of that interaction effect or because of that intersectionality goes beyond that. Um, that I think is a helpful concept that helped to redress some of a, some problem in America, a real problem in American law. Since then, people have sort of run with that concept in two ways that I think are much more troubling. The first is that intersectionality has now come to merge with the theory of standpoint epistemology to say, look, if you stand at a different intersection of identities than I do, you know, if you're a Latina woman, I'm a Jewish guy, we really can't understand each other. And because we really can't understand each other, rather than trying to have conversation and building solidarity with each other on that basis, I just have to defer to your political claims, right? Don't even talk to me about those things. You're never going to understand me. Just defer to my point of view. And that, I think, is a very damaging political idea. I mean, in some contexts, intersectionality has come to mean that because all these different forms of oppression are supposedly related, in order to be in good standing and fighting against one of those ideas, you have to fight against all of those ideas at the 
same time. And so in order to be allowed to join a feminist group, you also have to take on a particular kind of view about racism and a particular kind of view about the Israel-Palestine conflict and a particular kind of view about trans issues. Uh, so the litmus test for joining these organizations becomes really high. And if you disagree with any one of those topics, you sort of get run out. Neither of those ideas are what, what Crenshaw's sort of seminal articles would have defined as intersectionality, but that is what has become of that term in public discourse. And so just to go over very quickly, you know, you take these six or seven themes together, and that really gets you the identity synthesis, the rejection of truth in Foucault, the politicized form of discourse analysis in Said, the embrace of strategic essentialism in Spivak, the rejection of universalism, of the civil rights movement's ideology of integration, and the belief in the permanence of racism and other forms of bigotry in Bell. And then finally, these two interpretations of intersectionality as we won't really understand each other if we're in different intersections of identity and therefore to fight against oppression. I can't just be fighting against the cause that I care about. I have to sign up to your views, your ideas about what it is to fight against oppression as well. Hmm. Yeah, there's, it's been interesting to notice the places where the um, the intersectional arithmetic doesn't quite work out, and this has been especially clear on trans issues, where the very concept of trans rights has been in tension with gay rights and the rights of women in some obvious ways and, and ways that are still taboo to talk about. But let's bring a couple of other terms here into the conversation and define them, in, or at least um, describe how you think about them. How, how do you think about white privilege and the um, related concept of structural or systemic or institutional racism? Yeah, so I think that some of those concepts can be useful or helpful in specific contexts if they are, if they coexist with older concepts. And if you don't become sort of monomaniacal in seeing everything in the world through the prism that you prefer, right? So let's take a concept like structural racism. There certainly are societies where some form of structural racism persists. Um, though it's certainly true uh, for much of American history, and, and in some sense it continues to be true today. The core of that idea is that one kind of form of racism, of racist discrimination, is a set of first personal beliefs about the evil or the inferiority of some other group, right? Uh, to say that there's something bad about homosexuals, for example. We, we, we think they're immoral and they you know, should be shunned in society, right? But then you might have forms of structural homophobia in a society where perhaps most people no longer are homophobic in that way but, you know, do you want to be seen with a friend who's gay and perhaps people think that you're gay? You know, perhaps that takes a little bit of courage and a lot of people don't have that courage. When I was in high school, I think that was still probably the case in the context of my high school, for example. Or perhaps there's, you know, to advance at work, you really have to be able to bring a partner and you're not welcome to bring a same-sex partner. And so even for nobody in your particular workplace might hate gay people, that's going to make it harder for you to advance, right? So I think it's helpful to say, hey, not all forms of bigotry have to have this first personal, I hate these people element. It can inhere in those kind of structures. The problem becomes when two things happen. The first is that 
you insist on seeing every social ill through the prism of identity, even when something else is going on. In France, I think often people only see a social class, and they don't realize that some of the seeming inequalities of social class are actually driven by race. In America, many social scientists publish articles in which they only control for race and not for social class. Mm. And so then you're going to say that something is caused by structural racism, which might actually in part be caused by those kind of class boundaries. And then the other problem becomes when you don't want to enrich the older concept with a new concept, but you want to supplant it. So you say, hey, the only kind of racism that exists is structural. We don't have to care at all about person, people's first personal views. And so a black person cannot be racist against a Jewish person. Because structurally, Jewish people have supposedly more power in the United States than black people. And so if you have somebody who's black uh, going on a killing spree of Orthodox Jews that happened in Jersey City, that cannot be racist. You're making a misunderstanding if you think that's racist because only structural racism is true racism. Much of the media class has embraced that definition of racism and then simply becomes incapable of explaining the motivations of somebody like that murderer in Jersey City becomes uh, incapable also of seeing accurately a complicated social world in which, for example, uh, lots of Latinos who've been in the United States for longer have themselves quite negative and perhaps sometimes quite bigoted attitudes towards more recent Latino immigrants who perhaps come from a different country or from a different ethnic group within that country. But no, we just think, oh, this is all about structures and they're all Latinos and Latinos are disadvantaged, so they can't possibly be racist against each other or against other groups. Then this concept, which otherwise might help in certain contexts to enrich our understanding of the world, makes it impossible to see what's actually going on. Mm. Yeah. On the other side, it makes it impossible to understand the success of communities like in Nigerian immigrants, right? Or or Indian immigrants who, you know, are both of which are among the most successful subpopulations in the United States. If there's so much ambient racism keeping everybody down, structural or otherwise, how is it that uh, these communities thrive to the degree that they do? I, I want to talk about class in a moment, but uh, one more definition here. How do you think about the terms equity and equality? Because I, I remember I, now a few hundred podcasts ago, but I do remember at one point just naively using those terms almost interchangeably before I understood they were terms of jargon in leftist politics. Each term would, would emerge in my stream of speech more or less randomly, but they are profoundly different in terms of the goals that being named there. Yeah. And look, each of those terms can and has been defined in lots and lots of different ways, but I think each of them now has a sort of canonical definition in progressive thought, and that distinguishes them in important ways. So equality, especially in an economic context, is some idea of uh, you know, wanting to fight against general social inequalities. Um, you might think about that in a really economistic sense as the Gini coefficient, right? Uh, you know, what percentage of income in your society is captured by what percentage of the population? Do 10% own nearly 90% or earn nearly 90% or do you know, 50% own 90%? Those, um, you know, the first society is more unequal than the second society. 
again, really complicated what exactly you mean by economic equality in which exact context. And Matthias Sen has a great, uh, very influential book called Equality of What? But broadly speaking, that's what we're talking about when we say equality. In a more humanistic sense, you might say, well, an equal society is one in which we can look each other in the eye, in which we have enough approximate social standing that even for, you know, you might have a nicer watch than I do, or you, uh, you know, might have a nicer car than I do, we can encounter each other as social equals. That's how I tend to think of a version of equality that is really socially appealing. Mm. Also, the, the formulation I often hear now is equality of opportunity versus the notion of equity signifying more equality of outcome. Well, that, yes, I, I <laughs> so there we get into this equality of what debate, I think that could still be equality. And then the question is, what is the right metric? Do we want a society where we have, you know, just equality of opportunity and when the outcomes can be wildly divergent? Or do mm. we also care a little bit about uh, everybody having a decent outcome in life? Yeah, and a, you know, a, a I think, minimally I think acceptable care, outcome. Whatever the yeah. quality of opportunity, I think decent people can agree that the cracks through which you fall in the floor should only allow you to go so low in any decent society. And the idea that everyone has an equal opportunity to live as a homeless person on the sidewalk, uh, I don't think that's anyone's idea of, of a defensible social outcome. Exactly. And, and, and as pure and great a liberal as John Stuart Mill has made this point beautifully, he said, look, if people are lining up for a 100-yard dash, one question is, is it going to be fair, right? Is it really 100 yards for all of them? Do all of them have the same chance of hearing the starting clock, right? Is one, has one of them been weighted down with, with you know, somebody just, just holding them back, right? Um, somebody trying to trip somebody up? Well, we don't want any of that. We want equality of opportunity. But then there's still a question about what happens at the end. It's fine if a winner gets more honor, more accolades, perhaps more money. But if, you know, the winner gets really rich and the last three people are all shot, you know, the competition is fair, but the distribution of outcomes is such that we might be perturbed by it, right? Hmm. So I'm an egalitarian in that sense. I want equal opportunity, but I also care about building a society in which, you know, great, if you go off to Harvard or Stanford and you make a great discovery, you entertain a lot of people, have a slightly better life. We are in a rich society. If you can buy more Rolexes than I can and you can, you know, have nicer cars than I can, I don't care. That's great. Fine. But the person who doesn't have that academic talent or who's disabled or who has some other handicap, we still want them to be able to lead a humane life. We still want them to be able to lead a worthwhile life and to encounter others in society as a social equal, to not feel that, you know, my clothes are so tattered and torn and embarrassing and you have such great riches that we can't look each other in the eye. That's my understanding. You know, it's just my personal sort of way mm -hmm. of thinking about this. Now, when it comes to equity, partially it's a rejection of concerns for equal opportunity, you're right, but really fundamentally it is what Adolf Reed Jr. calls race disparitarianism. So here the concern is not about high equalist society as a whole. It is what is the relative distribution of goods between different identity groups, and in particular between different racial groups? So when you say, you know, we have a problem of equity in the United States, you're saying we have a problem of uh, African-Americans not earning enough money or not having enough wealth. Um, now, I think that there's some reasonable concern here that given the history of slavery and Jim Crow and so on, it is perturbing when this group of the American population has a lot less. The question is whether that's the right overarching goal 
and what means we should adopt in order to remedy that. Hmm. As Reed points out, he's himself African-American, that is not the right goal because you can get to equity by having in future 13% of billionaires, there's about 13% of black people in the United States, having 13% of billionaires be black. And you could have this vastly unequal society along the lines of what Mill was imagining. But as long as, you know, 13% of the winners are from the right demographic group, no problem if society is incredibly unequal. No, 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 no. Right? If you supplant the idea of equality with just caring about equity in that kind of way, I think that's, that's really bad. And then the other problem with equity is that it often doesn't actually help to remedy the kinds of injustices that you're talking about. So one of the reasons for this is that it makes it hard to sustain the kind of social programs that you need to make progress. If you have a disproportionate percentage of a population uh, that is in need be of one racial group, and you have universal welfare programs that, for example, help people who are poorer have a better education, they will disproportionately help the members of those groups. So you can actually push towards equity while sticking with the kind of universal social democratic welfare states that you have in a lot of European countries. If you say, no, we're going to explicitly say you get this help if you're black or Latino, but you're not going to get this help if you're white or Asian, then you stop losing electoral majorities and you make it much easier for people like Donald Trump to win elections. So there's a kind of political argument against this. But there's also a deeper moral argument. I think one thing that might conceivably happen in the United States I'm speculating here, uh, and I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but it's an interesting speculation, is that because of our immigration laws, you're going to get, as Nigeria and Kenya and other countries in Africa have a rising middle class and increase in population, you're going to have more and more high-skilled immigration from those countries through H-1B visas, and then you know, family members who those H-1B applicants can bring, who likely, you know, the sibling of an engineer is usually something pretty fancy in society as well, right? And if people from those countries continue to do really well, as they have over the last decades, Nigerian-American immigrants and Kenyan-American immigrants actually make significantly more money than the average white person now, mm. then we might move towards equity in the United States. I think it's quite imaginable that 50 or 100 years from now, the average black person in America, if, if, if these immigration patterns uh, develop in, in, in that way that is plausible, might have as much wealth, as much money as the average white person. But they will be these descendants of recent immigrants from Nigeria and Kenya who've made great contributions to the country. But they're not going to be the descendants of people who've been enslaved, who you might think actually in some ways are also deserving of consideration. However, something screwed up if we have this country in which you know, cities like Chicago and, 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 and Baltimore and Philadelphia are still going to have these communities that have been deeply disadvantaged for many, many, many generations. But according to the value of equity, who cares? Because there's these other black people who are doing well, and so mm. we've achieved equity. That doesn't, there's something about that that isn't quite right. So I think it's a concept as a normative ideal that we should view quite skeptically. Mm. Yeah, you just mentioned one of the... Um the remedies here that uh, seem so wrong-headed. But again, we, we run into the rhetorical disadvantage. that These are the kinds of examples that just exploded in significance right of center in mostly alternative media, but you know, obviously in, on you know, Fox News and, and elsewhere, but seemed routinely ignored by 
the mainstream press and uh, you know elite institutions. You cite them in your book. I mean, th- these were examples that many of us found especially galling. You know, during COVID, there were explicit and and in places covert, but non- nonetheless obvious racial preferences for remedies. So you know, for vaccines. I mean, the schedule of vaccines were it was you know explicitly designed to give non-whites access to vaccines earlier, even in cases where it was quite clear that would lead to more death, right? Where it was just to privilege young black people over elderly white people was just the wrong move epidemiologically. Also access to Paxlovid. And I think in, in examples that got even more attention on the right, because the right didn't especially care about vaccines, um, for the most part, the emergency funds for businesses to have funds allocated on the basis of whether or not the businesses were non-white owned. I mean, there's something so corrosive about that. I mean, it is just reverse racism, even though reverse racism is a kind of an anti-shibboleth of progressives. I mean, it is a, a phrase that is you know routinely ridiculed. There's no such thing. But it's so easy to anticipate that this is going to divide our society. And if it has any enduring effect at all, it will increase racism. Yeah, but one of the striking things about the Biden administration rules on this emergency fund is that previously uh, they had been allocated in order of priority to businesses that had a huge loss because of the pandemic. So if you'd lost 70% of revenues, you were first in line. If you'd lost 50% of revenues, you were second in line and so on. If the Biden administration made this about being, about the principal owner, the person who owned 51% or more being non-white or being uh, a, a woman or one of uh, a couple of other categories. One of the striking things about that, a small detail, but that I found was sort of telling is that if a black woman who really came from a poor background, build up their business and it was thriving, that she made the mistake of marrying a white guy mm. who now was a 50% owner of that company, she would not have priority eligibility for these funds. And because these funds were very limited, it would mean she wouldn't get them. So it's a, it's a small kind of little perverse outcome of this, but it just shows how easily these things can go wrong and, and, and lead to these manifest injustices. The most significant of these, and the one that frankly shocked me the most, it was the case about vaccines. And, and as you're saying, it really did not get enough attention. I sat through the presentation of the ACIP, which is a key advisory committee to the CDC, which was tasked with trying to figure out how to distribute these vaccines, uh, these life-saving vaccines, at a time when they really were very scarce. Now, virtually every country in the world, they, they prioritize hospital workers to some extent because you want to make sure that the doctors who, who we need are healthy. But after that, they uh, nearly everywhere went by order of descending age, right? I mean, this is a disease where by far and away, the strongest predictor of mortality was how old you are. And it's also much easier to communicate to people, hey, from this day on, you can get a vaccine if you're over 90. From this day on, you can get it when you're over 80, and so on and so forth. That's what nearly every country in the world did. Well, according to the ACIP, that was unacceptable because a disproportionate number of elderly in the United States is white. And so on grounds explicitly of equity, they ruled that out. 
And mm. even for their own causal model predicted that deviating from prioritizing the elderly in that way would lead to a significant increase of between 0.5 and 6.5% of deaths in the United States. They said, the ethical thing for us to do, because of equity, the ethical thing for us to do is to choose the course of action that's going to kill more Americans. Yeah. Those uh, guidelines were broadly implemented. They then had to be implemented by each state, and states made slightly different decisions. Some of them, many of them end up with a mix of the elderly and, and essential workers. But the result was a complete mess in two ways. One is that essential workers have this really broad category, and then everybody could lobby to be included in it. So finance executives were included in it. Movie crews were included in it. I was included in it because I'm a professor in the state of Maryland. And even though we weren't allowed to teach in person, that made me an educator who had a priority position. Uh, so you had a ton of people being in theory eligible and very few actual spots. And so who was able to actually get the vaccines into their arm? People like me who were able to click refresh on a website for five hours a day and drive mm. out in order to nab an appointment at a you know, rural remote pharmacy that had fewer people interested in it. So you actually ended up uh, helping the, the privileged. And finally, I'm quite sure this increased equity in the sense that the potential racial disparities in who got the vaccine may have decreased as a result of this. I'm not certain it has. I also think it probably decreased equity on the most important outcome, which is fatalities. Because if you give uh, two 25-year-old black Uber drivers a vaccine rather than one 80-year-old black retiree, more black people are going to die on average. Mm. Yeah. Again, I, I don't think this particular injustice got as much play as it might have on the right, because again, there, there was a massive bias against vaccines. I mean, they, they think they either don't work or that they, they are themselves killing people. But it was just absolutely shocking to me that we took that step. Because again, it is so wrong-headed. I mean, leaving aside the, the harm, I mean, the, the tangible, predictable harm it would do to the lives of people, you know, just epidemiologically, it is such an own goal politically for progressives and the Democratic Party to have committed. I mean, it's just, I mean, there's almost no caricature of the left that could come out of the mouth of Trump or DeSantis or anyone running for the presidency or any other office right of center that is an exaggeration at this point, given instances of that kind of distortion of political and ethical wisdom on the left. Yeah, and you know, Sam, the first time that I came on the podcast, we talked about populism and threats to democracy and those kinds of topics. And that's sort of what I cut my teeth on, right? And so some people have been asking me, oh, you know, have you changed your ideology? Have you, you know, do you, have you changed what you think about the world? Because you used to be worried about these far-right populists, and now you're worried about these liberal ideologies on the left. Well, actually, if you go back and read carefully, uh, some of those books I wrote at the time, like People versus Democracy, I already worried, for example, about the way in which the left was attacking free speech. And I remain very worried today about what would happen if Donald Trump takes back the White House in, in 2024. So I have consistently been a philosophical liberal, somebody 
who uh, recognizes many of these injustices but wants to find ways to deal with them that will actually inspire more cooperation in society. One topic we haven't talked about, for example, is cultural appropriation. Mm. Yes, there's bad cases of white musicians stealing music from black musicians. They shouldn't be, have done that. And in particular, those black musicians shouldn't have been discriminated against in the ways they were in the 50s and 60s. But the wrong-making feature of those cases is not, quote-unquote, cultural appropriation. It's not the fact that in a diverse, thriving society, people are going to influence each other inspire each other, learn from each other in all kinds of ways. That's one of the good things about our society. And yeah. so to bring it back to this question of populism, you know, for me, one is the yin to the other's yang. Um, one of the reasons why these ideologies could become so dominant in progressive spaces after 2016 is that Donald Trump was elected and that made anybody who criticized these ideas mm. look like a traitor because everybody was in an understandable panic about what was going on. Conversely, nothing is contributing more to Donald Trump having a real chance of winning in 2024 than yeah. the hold that these ideas now have over so many areas of our cultural, social, educational, commercial, and political life. Mm. Okay, well, let's linger for a moment on right-wing populism, because I, I, I absolutely share your fear that there is a um, a mutually reinforcing effect here, that the existence of Trump and Trumpism makes uh, a conversation of the sort we're having now fairly indigestible on the left, because you know, from the point of view of, again, the Mark Marins of the world, we have much bigger fish to fry, right? This is just a an elitist uh, little filigree over here we're um, contemplating. Uh, whereas there's the looming specter of what many people would would um, unselfconsciously call fascism. If not, if you're not comfortable with that word, at the very least, there's the possibility of losing our democracy in some very important ways. Give me a sense of proportion here. I mean, I, I, you know, just to tip my hand, I, I've always thought of the far right as being quite a bit scarier and worse than the far left, except for the fact that it is so obvious what is wrong with fascism and neo-Nazism and other, and QAnon and other craziness on the right, that there's very little to say about it. There's very little that need be said about it. It's incredibly boring spelling out what is wrong with being a Nazi in the year 2023. And Anyone who is tempted to be a Nazi is probably not listening. It's just you know, all the problems are right on the surface. Whereas dissecting what's wrong ethically or politically with a movement like Black Lives Matter is quite a bit more interesting in, in that it's more difficult and, it, and many more smart, well-intentioned people are confused by it, right? I mean, it's just there were so many smart people and smart institutions confused by what happened to George Floyd, right, and in the, in the aftermath of all of that. And we didn't have the same confusion after Charlottesville, right? It's obvious what was wrong with Charlottesville. So I, I've always thought that the, having the sorts of people like, you know, Timothy McVeigh, who will, you know, blow up buildings on the right, was obviously scarier than any indiscretion committed by a DEI administrator in an Ivy League institution. But there's much more work to do intellectually and ethically and politically 
to tease out what is wrong with the worldview of your average DEI administrator. And therefore, there's more to talk about. And what's more, the point you made is of great concern. The more we have crazy behavior on the left, the simpler it gets to elect someone like Donald Trump, uh, who won't acknowledge, uh, much less abide by any of the important norms of our democracy. So how do you think about the, the scale of the problem and how to apportion your time and attention and, and criticism at this point? Yeah, look, I, I, I agree with, with everything you've said. I, I do think the, the, the threat of right-wing authoritarianism is very, very, very serious. And that's a lot of what keeps me up at night. And I continue to write about that. I just wrote recently an article about the upcoming election in Poland, which will really uh, help to determine whether these reactionary right-wing populists are going to succeed in undermining in a lasting way Poland's democratic institutions. But first of all, my fear is that when you have a head-on competition between right-wing populism and left-wing identitarianism, the right-wing populism will nearly always win. So making sure that the default mode of the left doesn't become identitarianism mm. is in fact directly conducive to fighting against right-wing populism. If one is the yin to the other's yang, then we need to oppose both to avoid both or to avoid either. The second C Can point, you say more about wh wh why do you think there's asymmetrical advantage between the right and the left there? Well, let's, 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 let's think about it in terms of a kind of narratives that you're telling about your society, right? One is saying, look, the country is going to hell and everything is terrible, and these outsiders over there are to blame. If only you elect me and I'll stand up to these terrible people, everything is going to be great, right? That's a version of Donald Trump's narrative. That's pretty tempting for the members of a majority, which by definition are the majority, which matters in a democracy, right? Mm. The other narrative is to say, your country is so deeply and irredeemably rotten. There's so little we can do to make progress. And this is all your fault. And so therefore you should you know, self-flagellate and be deeply contrite. And then we're still not going to have a better society because racism is permanent. We're never really going to be able to come out of this. And there's no really positive vision I can offer you of a world in which we've moved beyond those injustices and actually genuinely treat each other as equals and are able to understand each other. I mean, you know, it's just you're going to have fewer people voting for that. Mm. The, the, the other point to make is that I think there was a moment when understanding these forms of right-wing populism was important and interesting, when we hadn't really conceptualized who somebody like Donald Trump is, how something like populism, and I still believe that, is different from something like fascism. And we had plenty of writing on that, and I was one of the first to, to, to write a book on that. And uh, you know, I've written hundreds of articles about Trump and all the things that are bad about him. But frankly, at this point, nobody who matters is listening. You know, I can write an Atlantic article that does pretty damn well by saying whatever horrible, you know, beating up on whatever horrible thing Donald Trump has said yesterday. Nobody who is going to read that is going to change their mind about Donald Trump. So it's ineffective and it's you know, intellectually boring. And then the last thing I'll just say is, look, these ideas do have real-life consequences. I do think the adoption by the CDC of the wrong vaccine prioritization rule killed probably thousands of people. 
I think that makes it worthwhile to write about, even if there's worse things going on around the world in various other ways. But the second thing is, you know, I care about the intellectual life. I care about public discourse. I'm sorry, I'm a professor who writes for the public. I'm interested in whether the categories we have for making sense of the world make sense or not. I think in all kinds of ways that is going to be super consequential. But even if it weren't, am I not allowed after, you know, multiple books and hundreds of articles worrying about right-wing populism to look, say, hey, what is going on with this new ideology that has fundamentally transformed how our universities work, uh, how we debate ideas, what our public sphere is like? But let's just keep ignoring that and, 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 and refrain from having a serious analysis of those ideas because there's something else in the world that is more important. I, I don't think that's a way to lead a, a, a meaningful intellectual life. And if that's what it was, was, then we should probably all just be warning about nuclear war all day long or something mm. like that anyway. Okay, well, let's talk about the role of elites here. And I, th I think we should also talk about class, which is obviously related to this concept of elites. But we, to my eye, we, we mostly have college-educated whites ramming through this agenda. I mean, whatever the contributions of people like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, there's a lot of college-educated white people who are politically left of the average African-American. and they're the ones accomplishing this, what you refer to at many points as the, this short march through the institutions. How do you think about the demographics here and the variable of elitism and class insofar as those might be different? I mean, there's, you can see that the Venn diagram doesn't perfectly marry here because you have a figure like Trump, who's obviously rich, but he's, he successfully sells himself as not being a member of the elite because he's rejected by the elite in so many respects. He's uh, an anti-intellectual, uh, etc. So how do you think about class and, and uh, elitism here? Yeah, you know, the Hidden Tribe study, which got a lot of play for good reason about four or five years ago, looks at what they call progressive activists, which roughly speaking is the 7 or 8% of the US population that really believes, or at the time that really believes, perhaps it's higher now, the set of ideas which we're talking about. And that group was disproportionately affluent. They were hugely disproportionately highly educated, much more likely to have postgraduate degrees. And they were much more likely than the average person in America to be white. Uh, so I think you know, this is really an educational divide. It is the educational hyper-elite and the broader professional milieus in which they're embedded that have embraced these ideas more strongly than everybody else. And by the way, one of the things that I always find fascinating is that, you know, this point that actually most non-white people are not woke, that in fact... Yeah. One of the reasons why Trump was competitive in 2020 and one of the reasons why he's now running even with Biden in many polls is that there's been a real racial depolarization of the American electorate, that you can predict less well today than you could in 2016 who somebody votes for by knowing their race. You know, that is strenuously denied by many of my friends and colleagues. And I think the reason for that is that because they come from these educational hyper-elite environments in which everybody pretty much embraces some version of these ideas, or, or a lot of people embrace some version of these ideas. They have genuine friends, not just token friends, genuine friends who are black or Latino or Asian American, 
And they all believe these ideas. And so there's a kind of availability heuristic where we're like, mm-hmm. well, the people I know who are minorities, they believe is what do you, but what do you mean the average person from that group doesn't believe that, right? It's a classic cognitive mistake, but one that I think really powerfully shapes how the most influential people in America think views are distributed throughout the American population. And so I have started to worry quite a bit about what I, what I, what I call the influential million, the million Americans who have the greatest cultural influence. Now, there's a number of elite groups in the United States, and they include just straight up you know, a conservative counter elite with lots of senators and governors and so on. It includes mm-hmm. the you know, very, very richest people in the country. It includes a kind of evangelical world and so on. Those are all influential and important in their own right. But there is a kind of mainstream educational cultural elite that dominates the universities and the S&P 500 companies and other professional firms and the tech world and the think tanks and so on. And they come from this influential million. And, 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 and you know, they come from a very strange social world. Um, they all went to elite universities pretty much. As we know from lots of stats, these elite universities disproportionately recruit from very affluent people. But even when some members of them are not, right, when they're generally average people or generally people from disadvantaged social backgrounds, at the age of 18, they go off to these college campuses. They take classes that often imbibe these ideas in them. They go to trainings run by educators, uh, by administrators, sorry, not educators. Hmm. Um, that are much more far left and much more illiberal, much more against free speech, for example, than the average faculty member. In some of these universities, there are more administrators than students at this point. Yes, um, and, and many more administrators than faculty members. So they're very influential on what, on what campus life looks like. And then we go off to you know, neighborhoods in the big cities in which there's a lot of other people who've recently graduated from those kinds of universities. And so basically, you know, even if you come from a genuinely average background, somewhere in the middle of a country, you know, pounds, earn about the median income, by the time you're 40 or 45 and have real influence and power in the society, for a majority of your life, you've only been around these hyper elite people. And that I think, especially at a time when there's more ability to self-select into culture because we have all these streaming networks and all of, you know, narrow casting and so on. You know, it just means that there is now a culture of that million people that is deeply, deeply disjointed from a lot of the rest of the country. Mm. And, you know, I think part of what explains the viability of, of somebody odious like Donald Trump still in the polls is the deep anger that he channels against that. And so trying to become more self-reflective about that is part of what it'll take to heal the country and to stave off the threat of right-wing populism. Look, I've been warning about Trump for 10 damn years at this point or eight damn years at this point. If people still aren't listening, perhaps it's time for us to look in the mirror a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that's wrong with this picture of, I mean, the, the kind of, it's the elite capture of the social justice movement and it has introduced some just profound distortions in our thinking about it. I mean, as you point out, I mean, there, you have largely white, hyper-educated people banging on about white privilege and cultural appropriation. And I mean, again, the, the Onion articles proliferate. I mean, there's, there are cases where you have, you know, white activists admonishing you know, Hispanics to use the term Latinx, and the, the Latinx is not a term they've ever heard in this case or what you wanted to use 
ever felt they needed. And it's, it's a kind of new religion, right? With all of the sanctimony and blasphemy tests and, and witch burnings, you know, of, you know, old time religion. And just, you know, it is in many cases propped up on obvious lies. I mean, one of the things that is so crazy making about many of the claims about the current state of, of racism in the U.S., I don't know how this maps onto Europe or, or the U.K. at this point, but is this claim of disadvantage, whereas in elite circles, you know, being black and qualified to enter elite circles is a positive advantage, and it has been for quite some time. I mean, it's, it's like the idea that there's any medical school where it wouldn't be a positive advantage to be a black applicant at this point. I mean, that, that is a liberal hallucination, right? And, and everyone knows it. I mean, I was at a, at a media conference. I, I won't name the, the organ, though it will be well known to you. Um, and I said something blasphemously along these lines in my um, panel discussion or, or fireside chat or whatever it was. And someone high up in the organization came up to me afterwards and said, you know, listen, I can't, I, you can't name me. I don't, I don't want to this has to be off the record, but I just want to say I appreciated what you said because, you know, I have a, a, a son who, who just you know, a wonderful kid who's just graduated from college. Uh, this woman was white. And she said, you know, there is no way I could hire him at this point. I mean, he would have to, for him to be hireable at my organization, he would have to be the next Alan Turing, right? I mean, just, there is just, it's impossible at this moment. And she was working, I mean, again, she was very high up in an organization that has proliferated a lot of these elitist liberal ideas about the state of, of racism in our society and inequality. And again, this is not to minimize the problem of inequality. I mean, I think wealth inequality in particular, beyond income inequality, is an enormous problem that we have to figure out how to do something about and, and to give numbers to it. I believe currently the the disparity in wealth between African Americans and whites is something on the order of 10x. I mean, it's at least 8x, you know, average, average amount of wealth that each a member of each group has at this point. Uh, and, you know, that's not historically accidental. The question is what to do about that. But the idea that we have to pretend that African Americans are at a disadvantage getting at the you know, when applying to college, I mean, we, we can talk about affirmative action because there was a recent ruling there, and it'd be interesting to know what you think we should do about it. But it's just, it is crazy making. And again, it's, it's understood to be a lie. The moment you move right of center in America, everyone knows that the left is lying about this. This is a little bit of a, a tangent, but, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a skeptic in the United States about trying to get at all kinds of moral issues through constitutional means. So, mm. you know, whatever the case for against the death penalty is, I don't think is rightly captured by talking about whether or not it constitutes cruel and unusual punishment, right? So often our sort of focus on these traditional categories makes it harder to have intelligent conversations about this. I think on a subject like affirmative action, the Supreme Court jurisprudence has actually been very smart. And the basic framework is agreed upon by you know, progressives like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and by conservatives like Antonin Scalia. And what they all used to say is that 
First of all, the 14th Amendment says that it is toxic to use categories of race to determine in particular how state institutions should treat people. Mm. And so we should in general avoid doing that whenever we can. Secondly, but there can be a certain kind of context in which there's such a compelling state interest, something so important that the state needs to accomplish for the well-being of its citizens, that there might be an exception to that general principle. But thirdly, that when that is the case, the remedy that the state pursues must be really narrowly tailored, right? There can't be a different way of achieving that same goal that doesn't use racial categories. And there has to be strict scrutiny, which is to say that society and the courts have to pay really close attention to make sure that this doesn't actually turn into something perverse. Now, you know, liberals on the court generally said that uh, various affirmative action programs pass muster. Conservatives on the court generally thought that affirmative action programs do not pass muster. We can have a long debate about, you know, which program does what. I think one thing is very clear is that Harvard did just discriminate against Asians in ways that I think are, are deeply shameful. Mm. When you have, you know, the assessment of a, of a personality of Asian applicants as assessed by admissions officers who haven't met those applicants, be a standard of deviation worse than that of any other race, even mm -hmm. though those applicants get equal marks on alumni interviews and have equal achievements on paper in extracurriculars. I think it's very hard to have an explanation for that that isn't racist. But whatever you think about that, you know, I think the general principle should hold that that is how we run our society, that we in general want how we treat each other and how the state treats all of us to be less rather than more dependent on the particular group to which we belong. And when there is a necessary exception to it, we scrutinize that very, very carefully. Um, one of the concerns I have about how this new ruling is going to play out is that it leaves open this potentially pernicious loophole to say, you know, you can't consider race, but we, what you can consider is how race shaped people's experiences. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have even less emphasis on the SAT, even less emphasis on objective markers of achievement, and even more of the kind of BS game that universities as a whole are engaged in of like trying to handpick the class where we have to have, you know, 18 good uh, rugby players and we have to have a second bassoonist for the orchestra and we have to have people who's, you know, we, we're going to give advantages to children of professors. This is absurd. The children of professors have a huge advantage in the United States. The children of alumni and then we're going to pay this huge attention to this personal essay where people are telling us about how they're fundamentally shaped by their experiences of discrimination. And some of them may have had those genuine experiences. Others are going to have such an incentive to claim mm -hmm. that they did, that either they are taught that to belong to the American elite is to learn how to lie, or they generally start to self-perceive in those ways because all of the incentive is to have that self-narrative about themselves. And so I think, you know, beyond the question of how you deal with the historical disadvantages faced by African-Americans and the fact that today, if you uh, didn't have some form of affirmative action that might lead to big underrepresentation at these schools and that in light of America's history would be troubling and perhaps therefore some form of reparation is, is, is apposite in those forms, that's a deep, complicated question that I'm willing to, to think about and debate. But the idea that, you know, 
whatever middle-class kid is best able to write a personal essay with the help of 17 tutors to pass as having had traumatizing experiences based on their racial identity, but that's mm. a good selection criteria for entry into the American elite. And then at the same time, we're also going to have help for kids of, you know, professors at our schools get in. I mean, that whole system is just deeply, deeply dystopian. And so mm. I'm really not a burn down the system kind of a guy. I think that's the answer in very, very few circumstances. But when it comes to the overall American admission system, I just think burn the whole damn system down and start from scratch. What criteria would you privilege as the most useful? Well, I think the basic criterion should be academic aptitude. And then, you know, you can talk about how to uh, design that system and how to measure that and how to make allowances for, you know, various things. But, but I think sort of this overall business of designing the perfect class mm. uh, in this bespoke way where, you know, all kinds of people get bizarre privileges for all kinds of reasons, I think is really weird. But by the way, one of those is that because girls now academically outperform boys by quite a lot, um, mm. you have a kind of form of affirmative action for boys in many of those Ivy League universities. Because God forbid that the, the sex ratio at Harvard comes to be 58-42 rather than 50-50, you know, whatever. If that's, you know, the most talented kids who want to study those subjects are disproportionately girls, let there be some more girls in the undergraduate class. I just think the whole enterprise of how American universities think about, you know, creating this balance, whatever class, is just deeply corrupt. And it's really uh, out of keeping with what elite universities and selective universities do in other countries. Yeah, but couldn't you see that it would be easy to argue that there, there is a tipping point? I mean, if you were going to be truly blind with respect to the identities of applicants, and you were just going to do it on the basis of, let's say, test scores and grades, and then you unmask this class, you know, on the day of matriculation, and you discover you have, you know, 75% Asians and 75% girls, that's a weird class, just socially. I mean, it just, it's completely unrepresentative of, of American society. And it's also, you know, when you just look at the, the, the implications for heterosexual dating, uh, it's a weird class. Uh, socially, so let it be. Well. So let it be a weird class. I mean, I th look. I think the one argument that I have, genuine sympathy for, is uh, you know a form of reparations argument or a form of argument that talks about the lingering effects of injustice. Right. So you know, there's a group of African Americans in the United States who are descended from slavery who have experienced deep and genuine injustices in chattel slavery and beyond and Jim Crow, and so to have these elite universities you know, barely have any presence from those groups would, would, would be troubling. And so to make an exception to a generally meritocratic principle to try and avoid that is something that I think is really complicated. I feel torn about it, but I see the, mm. the strong reason for that. But you know what? I teach at Johns Hopkins, and it is a disproportionately Asian undergraduate body, and they're great students, and they're going to make great contributions to society. And the idea that somehow, you know, there's not going to be interesting campus life or we're going to be too nerdy or whatever because we're stereotyping what Asian students are like, which is what happens in these undergraduate admissions offices, mm. I think is, is just perverse and we should reject that. And look, you know, if you have an undergraduate class where uh, it's a little bit harder for, for girls to date within the class because you have 60% of women, I, I feel for them, but college is not a dating service and perhaps it'll lead them to go online dating and match with some people in the community around them who are not on the track to 
uh, uh, you know, being uh, future hyper elites of the United States. And perhaps that's not so bad either. I just, I just don't think that that should override those other considerations. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so we've, we've spoken uh, for nearly two hours about, mostly about the first part of your book. Let's jump ahead and deal with some of the remedies. How should we live, Yasha? Given the identity synthesis and the mad work it's doing in our politics, perhaps you want to speak more about the core concept here, but what should we right-thinking people, whether we be left or right or center at the moment, do in light of the current status quo? Yeah, so I have uh, you know, a whole part three of a book where I really go through these main controversies that we have today. You know, I make an argument for why we should not put uh, mutual cultural influence in the general pole of suspicion, why the wrong-making feature of those kinds of exchanges is not what's called cultural appropriation. I make a case for a broad culture of free speech, explaining why the strongest arguments for free speech are not about the great things we get from it, but actually about the terrible things that happen if we give up on free speech. I you know, touch on this progressive separatism in education and how we should think about race-sensitive or identity-sensitive legislation. I have to leave some things to the imagination of all of you so that you go and buy the book, so I'll skip over those. But, but one other important thing is to really then boil down this ideology to the main tenets. So we've talked about its main themes and many of its applications throughout this conversation. But I think actually you can reduce it to three principal claims, all of which not coincidentally are an attack on liberalism. So the first of these is the claim that, uh, you know, these identity categories like race, gender, and sexual orientation really are and should be the principal prism for which to understand society. But if you want to understand society, forget about everything else, the thing you really need to get the dynamics of our conversation or what causes a political revolution or why Donald Trump was elected is think about race, gender, and sexual orientation. Um, now, Robin D'Angelo once said that every time a, a white person interrupts a black person, they're bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. Mm. That is part of that kind of thinking. It can't be that they're just friends that love to argue and bicker about politics. It can't be that they're spouses who often interrupt each other. No matter what the context, because of the background power relations, that's what it means, right? The second point really is at the heart of what Derek Bell and others say, which is that all of these universal values or neutral rules are just a way of pulling wool over people's eyes. That they don't, it's not just that we hypocritically haven't always lived up to them, is that they actually have the function of perpetuating racial discrimination, of perpetuating uh, homophobia and other forms of bigotry by hiding that stark reality from our eyes. And therefore, the third remedy, recognizing that we haven't been able to make any progress, is to rip them up, is to say, let's get rid of these uh, universal values and neutral rules and explicitly build a society in which how we treat each other, how we're treated by the state, how the whole social and political world functions explicitly depends on the kind of group of which you are a part. 
Now, I think that there's a way in which philosophical liberals can take on board some of the core insights that we've learned from this tradition, as well as many other traditions, about real discrimination and real injustice over the last decades, um, without throwing the baby out of the bathwater in that kind of way. So I also suggest three kinds of responses to the core claims of, of, of the identity trap. The first of them is that, yes, of course, we need to understand race and gender and sexual orientation in order to make heads and tails of society. Of course, we shouldn't blind ourselves to forms of racial discrimination, for example, or to forms of homophobia that, that persist today. But we can't decide uh, on first principles that that is going to be the most important thing that explains any situation. In other kinds of situations, mm. social class is going to be more important. In other kinds of situations, religion or people's moral status or their kind of wishes and imaginations or uh, religion is going to be more important. So uh, we have to look at each situation, try on different kinds of prisms, and then let ourselves be guided by empirical reality mm. to, in this circumstance, is race more important than class? Or is it a mix of the two, or is it something else entirely? Uh, I would just add, Yasha, that there, there are many situations where none of those variables are important, and it's, and it's essential that we recognize that. I mean, what, what we find ourselves in now, and this is especially obvious in journalism, is that when an incident gets reported, and it's some, there's some piece of chaos that gets described, the one that caught my attention recently, I believe this has happened a couple of months ago, you know, on a, uh, a subway in New York, a homeless person, a mentally ill homeless person, draws the attention of many people on the car and makes them, you know, quite uncomfortable, and violence ensues, and the person is killed. There are many people, perhaps most in our society at this point, who don't know how they feel about that situation. I mean, you can, you can describe it exhaustively. You can describe exactly the behavior of everyone involved. And to my eye, you can describe it absolutely sufficiently to parse the ethics, but people don't know how they feel about the situation until they learn the races of the people involved. And I, I think that's quite perverse. It's quite an ugly distortion of real human ethics. And yet, our, you know, we're, we're living in a media environment where the coverage of an incident like that absolutely depends, tangibly depends, on the races being politically uh, acceptable in, in the way they're, you know, the way that the chess pieces are, are arranged on the board, right? So if the victim is black and the perpetrator white, well, that is one sort of story. If you flip it around, it's a very different story. And at least of the difference of, you know, one story being routinely ignored and the other story detonating like a nuclear bomb in the news cycle. So I, I would just, I just wanted to plant a flag for there being many situations in which progress for us morally and politically will be to simply not care about superficial human differences. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's perfectly appropriate in a situation like that to say, hey, Let's know that there's some background facts of, uh, you know, racism and other things in society. So, uh, you know, let's see whether that was a motivation in this case. Right. Did somebody use a racial slur? Does somebody have, you know, a Facebook account where they published all kinds of racist things? And if so, then perhaps that's part of what informed that. But you can't just look at the skin colors 
other people involved and say, this is the one prism through which we see society. That's what it is, right? If a white yeah. person interrupts a black person, they must be bringing the whole uh, apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. Never mind that in this case, perhaps their spouses or best friends or the white person is, uh, you know, an employee that's being fired by the Latino person and they're just, you know, saying, you know, that sucks, man, I don't think that's fair, whatever, right? No, 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 all we need to know about the situation is the relative identity groups and, and that's what, that's what is explained. That is as simplistic as Marxism in a way was simplistic by trying to shoehorn mm -hmm. everything through the category of class. And so we have to reject uh, what, what John Hyde calls the sort of monomaniacal Uh, methodological approach, right? We have to let the situation guide us in our assessment of which category is important and useful in this context, rather than coming in with strong preconceived notions where we already know, before we've investigated anything, that if you know one of these figures is of this race and one of these persons is of another race, then that explains to us exactly what happened. Yeah. I just want to be clear, Yash, I, I was not disputing in, in my generic example that hate, racially motivated hate crime or, or any other sort of hate crime is also a category of crime that we need to care about. It's just that there are many crimes where it's the, the, that variable is obviously not present, and yet people still feel that the situation is radically different if you change the races of, of those involved. And, and, and that's it's just clear to me that progress for us entails getting beyond that default setting. Yes, no, no, I, I, and I didn't think you were you were disagreeing yeah. with me. the The second point here is the response to 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 the second postulate of the identity trap, right? And that's to say, look, of course, universal values and neutral rules are not in themselves enough to guarantee that we have a fair society or that people are in fact treated well. Um, in no society in history have people fully lived up to the best self description that they had. But, you know, one of the most proud political traditions in, 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 in the United States uh, has been built and based on the recognition of those injustices and then on the demand to live up in a better way to the values that we have. Um, Frederick Douglass realized that free speech allowed slavers to say nasty things, but he also insisted that it allowed abolitionists to criticize those slavers, and therefore he called it the dread of tyrants. You know, Martin Luther King pointed out that the check that the Bank of Justice had issued to African Americans was fraudulent, but he didn't say, let's rip up the check. He said, let's make sure the Bank of Justice cashes that check, that we come to be in the enjoyment of those kinds of protections as well. And so the second fundamental point is to say that No, the universal values and neutral rules uh, that structure the United States Constitution and the political systems of other liberal democracies around the world, they are what has allowed us to make imperfect but tremendous progress. They are the reason why we have much more social equality between different ethnic groups, uh, gay marriage, much more humane treatment of sexual minorities today than we did 200 or 100 or 50 years. Ago. And so therefore, the third response is, no, we're not going to rip up those principles. We're not going to say that they're hypocritical to hell with them. We're going to say, we need to recommit ourselves to living up to these ideals, to making them reality as best as we can. And we want to live in a society in which 
who you are and what your opportunities are and how you're seen uh, and what your social status is in the world is less rather than more dependent on the group into which you're born. Not because we ignore the injustices that are real, but because we've actually built a society uh, that facilitates progress and solidarity in such a way that who you are is less dependent on those things, that what you can accomplish is less dependent on those things than it has been in the past. Well, Yashif, I guess one final question. How optimistic are you that we can make the necessary course corrections, given in particular the role that social media is now playing in our lives, in our, in our politics, and I think especially in its effect on the business model and incentive structure of mainstream journalism. Right? I mean, we, like, to some considerable degree, social media and the distortion of journalism explains how we got here. It explains how the institutions so easily succumbed to this. I mean, this is something you detail in the book. We haven't spoken about it here, but I mean, it's, it's quite an astounding story of how a social media site that most of us ignored, Tumblr, birthed the, you know, the, the, the meme complex that subsumed more or less everything on the left. Given, I mean, this is, I, I feel unsuited to judge this at the moment because I have stepped away from social media quite successfully and now I literally go weeks without looking at the site that was formerly known as Twitter. Unless someone sends me a tweet that they think I really must see by email, then I poke around for a minute, and, and, and I'm just astounded to see how bad things are. What, what, are, what are we going to do here to change our politics and the practice of journalism in light of the fragmentation that has been forced upon us by our use of social media? Social media has allowed the most extreme voices to have an outsized role, and it's, be, it's played a huge role in enshrining this ideology in the heart of America's cultural and intellectual life. It's part of what the enforcers of the most simplistic version of this ideology use in order to scare people away from criticizing those ideas. And for all of that reason, I think that we're going to have a generational debate about these ideas that, uh, uh, you know, alongside the fight against far-right populism and so on, we're going to have a huge 20-year mm. contestation over whether the identity synthesis should rule supreme in intellectual life or whether there's going to be space for engaging and critiquing it as well. In the same way in which, you know, many history departments in much of the post-war era in North America and Western Europe would have been split between Marxists and non-Marxists. There's going to be a split between, you know, people who fall into the identity trap and people who criticize it in many of uh, our academic departments and op-ed pages and much of public life for, I think, the next few decades. So I think the outcome of that fight is genuinely uncertain. We've seen a little bit of pushback against the most extreme uh, and absurd parts of this over the last year or so, but at the same time, some of its fundamental assumptions have really become established um, as a natural part of life at this point. So you don't think it's we've reached peak woke? Because I, I, this could be a hallucination on my part, but there have been many moments over the last year or so where I felt the pendulum must be swinging back. Uh, and I, this is most I mean, somewhat the result of of reactions to 
the excesses of the far left uh, that, I, that I've seen publicly, but a, a lot of it has been the result of private conversations I've had with people who can't really go public with respect to their their sympathy for our way of thinking here, but nonetheless, they they are kind of at their at the end of their patience with just the, the the capture of institutions, even institutions they run by this kind of you know moral panic on the left. Well, I think there's a real opportunity to push back at the moment because many people feel that way. I have one person in my personal circle of acquaintances um, who was always very skeptical when I criticized some of these ideas, who is much more sort of, I guess, woke than I am. And who was always sort of a little bit rolled her eyes and said, you know, you know there's, there, there Yasha goes again. Um, and when I first saw her out of the pandemic at a larger social gathering, she's made a beeline straight for me and said, I completely get what you're talking about. And the reason is that the very progressive organization for which she had worked just tore itself apart and scapegoated people in absurd ways. And it became such a toxic workplace and it was so incapable of pursuing its mission that she quit that job. And so she now was sort of on the same page. We probably still have some political differences, but she mm-hmm. thought, I really get why this is not a trivial thing to, to worry about. So I think there is that opening. But even as the most extreme accesses have been walked back, I do think when I talk to my students, for example, who are open to debating these issues, who, who actually crave intellectual engagement, that the basic categories that they've been taught all through their lives are that, you know, free speech is concerning, that the most fundamental thing about you is your identity, that of course uh, all of public policy needs to explicitly be tailored to people's identities. So many of those ideas, but of course cultural appropriation is in any form a negative thing, and so we should be really careful about those forms of mutual exchange. These ideas have, even as the most absurd manifestations have been walked back, have real, real purchase in society today. So Sam, you know, to, to answer head-on your question about optimism, I think it depends on what we're going to do. And so, you know, I give a little bit of advice at the end of the book for how to fight back in the way that, that you do from the moral high ground, neither being overly apologetic about what you're arguing for, nor playing the role of a jerk that thinks he's going to be hated anyway, so he may as well just sort of mm. act like an asshole. You know, I argue for those ideas because right or wrong, perhaps I'm mistaken, I believe him to be the best guide to society to all of us for how to create a better country and a better world. Uh, and I try to argue not with the most extreme and shrill voices, but with the reasonable majority, um, which exists today, I think, the people who genuinely abhor racism and abhor homophobia and abhor discrimination, but that also are starting to see, like my friend is, that perhaps some of these ideas are not in fact going too far, but leading us in the wrong direction. And we should question them a little bit. It's, it's to try and persuade people who disagree with us rather than to vilify them. It's to escape the reactionary trap that so many people have fallen into where you start to just rail against anything that might be woke in any kind of way without having your own substantive view of the values that guide you. Those values might be different for you and me and for the two of us and some of the many listeners to this podcast, right? For me, it's a form of philosophical liberalism. For others, it might be conservatism or Marxism or Christianity or Buddhism or whatever it is, right? But you should want to actually build towards the world that you think is right and stand up for those things in a principled way rather than 
just opposing anything that enemy might in any kind of way describe as woke. And so I really have fought hard about what what I want to do with with these arguments in this book. And I have sort of two audiences in mind that hopefully can help us win this battle. And the first is, you know, people who are basically convinced that uh, these ideas are a trap, who are basically on board with worrying about this stuff, but uh, who perhaps don't quite feel comfortable that they've understood these ideas well enough, that they know enough about them, that they have the language to argue against them in their social context at the workplace. So to improve the level of argument that we're going to have at our disposal in what is going to be this 20-year fight. And the other is that I really hope that this is a book that you can give to, you know, your sister who's a little bit woker than you are, your, your brother-in-law who's a little bit woker, perhaps somebody who's generally on the fence in that way, who believes at some level that these ideas are what's going to make a better world, but is also starting to realize that perhaps they're not quite what they seem and there's some genuine reasons to be worried about. I hope that this book and the arguments in it can help persuade those people and, 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 and help them understand why those ideas about identity have a real lure, right? They're, they're really attractive in a certain kind of way, but they are ultimately a trap that's going to make the world worse for members of, of dominant groups, for members of marginalized groups, for all of us, will make it harder to build the kind of country that I think we all deserve. The book is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Yasha, thanks for coming on the podcast. This was fun. Thank you, Sam. 